we've been in a series of conversations about the Old Testament prophet of Jonah, and it's a lot. Now, look, none of us gets to be the person that gets it all right. We had an awesome young couple, Diane and I, did over to our house last night to talk about their wedding. Um, I'm going to marry them this fall. And we had an opportunity to say to them, and I always love this moment when I'm talking to young couples. You know, I lean over and look as intense as I can, and I say, nobody gets to marry the person who has it all together. So if you wake up one day and realize, holy smokes, this person's got serious problems, the only thing that happened is you just realized it. They had them all along. None of us gets to be the people that gets it all right. But here's the thing. God wants us to be good, and he wants us to get it right, but we just don't. Well, the prophet Jonah didn't either. And today we're going to look at what he did get wrong. And uh, we're going to talk about some critically important things. Jonah is, in effect, going to hold up a mirror to our lives today, and he's going to ask us to look. And I have prayed that we would have the courage to do so. Before we get there, I want to read part of Jonah chapter 3. I just want you to listen. This is the part of the story that often gets emphasized, and this is often where we end the story, but this is not where the story ends, I'll tell you in advance. So let me read Jonah chapter 3 so you hear the good news. Here's Jonah chapter 3. If you've been here with us, you will remember that God told Jonah to go speak to the Ninevites. Jonah said no. He ran in exactly the opposite direction. He got on a ship. There's a storm. The sailors wonder what in the world's going on. They realize it's Jonah's fault. Jonah says, throw me overboard. They do it. They throw him overboard. He's surrendering himself. Feels like he's dying. A huge sea creature swallows him. And inside the sea creature, he has this eye-opening experience, and he repents. The sea creature spits him up on the shores, and he says, whatever, and God repeats almost word for word exactly what he'd said before. Go to the city of Nineveh and preach to them, and Jonah says, you got it. So he heads to the city of Nineveh, and here's what happens. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. In just a few minutes, I'm going to have that message on the screen for you. That's Jonah's sermon. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. This revival affected the cattle. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Yay! Woo! Awesome! Cheer! Yeah! Hallelujah! Only not really, because that's not where the story ends, and we're going to hear. But before we do, let's tee this up with a word of prayer. Father, would you be around us and among us and in us this morning and whisper to us those places where we need to examine ourselves, examine how much of us coming to church even is us trying to be religious 
and not living with and in and through repentance. Speak to us about the meanness of our lives. We want to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's start with a general big picture, and then we're going to look at how Jonah kind of lives this out. It's really hard to follow Jesus. It's not just hard to do, it's hard to understand. In many, many ways, following Jesus is the exact opposite of what we think and expect. I'm actually going to detail four things for you, and there are more. Number one, following Jesus is not about me. It's about God. We think it's about us. Our whole lives are about us. That's what we begin thinking from the time we're these girls' age. But it's not about us. It's about God. And by the way, by analogy, this is the same thing is true for all of our important relationships. For example, in my marriage with Diane, it's not about me. It's about Diane in every sense. And, and I, there's nothing humorous about that. I mean that literally. And here's the counterintuitive thing. When I make it about me, I end up miserable. But as I learn to make it about Diane and as I begin to apply that, the weird thing is it kind of becomes about me. I get affirmed and I get loved by making it about her in my heart, in my mind. It's not about me. It's about God. Secondly, and this is a corollary to the first one, my blessings are not solely for me. God doesn't bless me so that I can feel good. God blesses me so that I can be a blessing to others. Blessings are designed to flow through us. When we create a little pool and allow God to pour his blessings in, he pours his blessings in and reaches the top, he can't bless us anymore. But when we create a stream in our lives, he's able to continue to pour blessings in our lives as they flow through to others. That's why it's so important that my values line up with God's values, that I'm loving the people that God loves, and I'm feeling the things that God feels. Third, It's not really about effort. It's about surrender. Now, when I grew up in a little Baptist Sunday school in the Bible Belt, I got this completely wrong. Some of you may have as well. You may have grown up in my church. Or you may have spent your years in Catholic school getting this completely wrong. It's not about effort. It's about surrender. Jesus said it this way. Look, if you want to follow me, if you want to learn how to really connect with God, you've got to give it all up. You have to lay down your life. He told us the way to live is to die. What? The way up is down. The way to lead is to serve. Fourth, and this is a corollary of the third one, it's not about my goodness. It's about my repentance. That means it's about my soft-hearted brokenness, about my shortcomings, my self-examination, and then turning my whole life over to God as my only solution. When we do it God's way, we get grace and blessing and peace. When we don't do it God's way, when we don't follow Jesus, instead, when we follow the way of self-focus, the way of wanting and expecting to be blessed so that we can feel better, when we follow the way of religion and trying to be good, we end up flopping back and forth between doing good and feeling really good and doing bad and feeling miserable. We end up expecting things from God and from life, and we feel entitled to them. We end up feeling sorry for ourselves because things don't work out the way we thought they would. We end up forfeiting the grace that could be ours, as Jonah himself put it in chapter 2, verse 8. That's what Jonah does. In a nutshell, he runs from God, then he repents and does what God wants, then he hates what God does, and he gets mad at God and feels sorry for himself 
Jonah is not a good prophet. So I want you guys to watch this video. This is just like a two and a half minute video. And this tells you the story of Jonah. Honestly, it tells you the story of Jonah the way we usually tell it. And at the end of this video, I'm going to say, yay, but not, that's not all. So I want you to watch this video to, to set up the not all part. Here's Jonah. This is Jonah, and he's overboard. A few minutes ago, he was up here with these guys, but they threw him into the sea. To understand why, let's back up. Jonah was a prophet. He got messages from God and delivered them to people. God will restore our land. Everything was fine until God gave him this message. In 40 days, you will be destroyed. Jonah didn't like the message, and he really didn't like Nineveh. So he did what any of us might do when confronted with the clear, unchanging will of an all-powerful God. He ran. He ran in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he didn't stop at the sea. He kept going on this boat with these guys. Until they realized that Jonah was the cause of this horrible storm that tossed their ship, and they tossed him overboard. That's when Jonah met the very big fish. Fish stomachs are strange places, but they get you thinking about life. And Jonah realized he'd made a mess of his. He decided that God's way is the best way, no matter what. And he got the chance to prove it. Jonah arrived in Nineveh, a foreign city filled with godless people. He knew his mission. He held his message. All that remained was a choice. Speak or run. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed! With those words, Jonah went overboard again. Not like a fool being tossed to the sea, but like a man diving headfirst into destiny and something wonderful happened. People were saved. A triumph of mercy sent emotion by one man, armed with eight words and the decision to stop running and start talking. That is the story of Jonah. And the really big fish. That's gonna leave a stink. All right, everybody say, yay, Jonah. Everybody say, yay, Ninevites. Yeah. Everybody say, fireworks, boom, boom. Fireworks. Everybody say, this is all good news. Oh. Not really. So far, so good. This is often what we do with Jonah. We clean up the story. By the way, we do that with our own stories as well. But unfortunately, that's not how the story ends. So I've asked my two lovely assistants if they would read Jonah chapter 4, and we're going to get the rest of the story. So let's hear what Jonah gets wrong. And if you would, let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word. Jonah chapter 4, what Jonah gets wrong. Girls? But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Thank you, ladies. You may be seated. Okay, last week we talked about repentance. We looked at chapter 2 from Repentance, Jonah's song, and it, it gives a beautiful outline of some of the significant features of repentance. We said, first of all, that repentance involved a clear-eyed vision of where we really are. We get it. We're not kidding ourselves. Secondly, we said repentance involves a clear-eyed acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and saving power. It's all about God. Thirdly, we recognize that Repentance involves an abandonment of all our dependencies and values apart from God. And fourth, we said, repentance involves a firm determination to follow the way of the Lord. So all of that means examining ourselves, exposing ourselves to God and to one another, owning our shortcomings. Listen to how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 139. I want you to see this. Psalm 139. Search me, God. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. Know my heart. Would you see if there's anything offensive in me? Lead me in the way everlasting. Eventually, if we follow this kind of practice, this life of repentance, we end up being the kind of people who are always able to look at others with grace. We hardly notice the speck in their eye because the log in our eye is so big to us. Jonah does that. In the belly of the whale, Jonah does that. He surrenders, he repents, Jonah does it. And then he doesn't. And when he doesn't, he gets all turned around and miserable. Look, Jonah wasn't a fan of the Assyrians. And we can cut him a break here because they were terrible people. They were ruthless to a degree rarely seen in human history. They murdered and pillaged and tortured beyond anything reasonable, beyond almost human understanding. The descriptions of the battles, the Assyrian conquests, are frankly horrific. Plus, they had already completely destroyed many of the cultures surrounding Israel, and they were exacting taxes from the places that they had not destroyed, like the Israelites. They were terrible. So obviously, it comes as a surprise to Jonah when God asks him to go preach to these horrific Assyrians. Eventually, of course, he goes after the whole getting swallowed by the whale incident. Now, in all likelihood, Jonah would have spent his first day in Nineveh meeting with the officials of Nineveh. He probably would have brought gifts, and he would have officially announced his presence, and eventually he would have announced his mission. 
And this is where the preaching starts. I have a message for you, and his message is pretty simple. Remember? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. There it is. It's almost as if his message is designed to be rejected. There are no niceties. Jonah doesn't seem particularly interested in being culturally sensitive. There's no grace in this message. I want you to think of the irony of that. I'm, I'm going to quote one, one guy who was writing about this. Quote, Jonah had just experienced the unmerited grace and goodness of God in his own life. Now he turns around and makes it as difficult as possible for the Ninevites to experience God's deliverance. This is a graceless message delivered by one living in the shadow of an experience of grace. Jonah doesn't make it easy. But the Ninevites respond positively, very positively. They repented and began to cry out to God. There's a spiritual revival that affects even the cattle. And what about Jonah? Does Jonah celebrate the success of his message? Does he celebrate the greatness of God? Does he revel in the expanse of, of God's great reputation even to Nineveh? Not in the least. Not only is he unhappy about the Assyrians' repentance, he goes completely in the other direction. He's very upset. Primarily, he's upset with God for sparing them. He doesn't want the Assyrians to repent. He wants the Assyrians to be judged. And this isn't righteous anger. The word anger in verse 1, used later in the chapter, is a serious anger word. It, it suggests to burn or to be kindled with anger. This is unholy, self-centered, furious pouting. Why? Why does Jonah end up in this place? What does he get wrong? I think it's primarily two things, and this is where God would hold up the mirror to us. Number one, Jonah doesn't believe the Assyrians deserved God's mercy. He doesn't believe they deserved it. Listen to his language in verse 2. Jonah knew that God was Hanun. That's the Hebrew word usually translated gracious. It communicates, according to one Hebrew scholar, I'm going to quote, quote, the positive attitude and actions of the Lord toward those who are undeserving. Jonah knew the Lord is rahum. That Hebrew word is usually translated compassionate or merciful. It was often used to express the merciful compassion of a mother for a child. And Jonah knew that God was Eric. Apayim. This phrase means slow to anger. Jonah knew that God judged as a last resort, and Jonah knew that God was chesed. Most scholars will say this word is hard to translate in English. It means something like covenant love. It means love that can't be broken. Love that does its part in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the recipient. How did Jonah know these things about God? Because God had been Hanun and Rachum and Eric Apayim and Hesed with him. But don't be that with the Assyrians, God. They don't deserve it. P.S. Jonah, who does deserve it? Do you? This is what religion does. It makes it about my effort and my goodness. Religion wants to earn. Repentance wants to receive grace given. Religion needs to be good. In fact, it needs to be better than others. Repentance wants to surrender. 
Jonah was deeply unhappy because he didn't believe the Assyrians deserved God's mercy. When we follow Jesus, it's not about our effort and it's not about our goodness. It's about surrender and repentance. And that changes not only the way we do life, but the way we look at others. Secondly, Jonah was unhappy because, hang on to your hats for this one, for Jonah, his connection to God was about Jonah and Jonah's type of people. So here's what I mean. Second verse of chapter 4 that Marissa read for us, the word me or I appears nine times in the original Hebrew. For Jonah, it was about Jonah. I don't like this, God. I didn't like this before we got started. This is exactly what I thought would happen. I'm mad at you, and you inconvenienced me for something I knew would be terrible. Well, here it is, exactly as I predicted, and whenever you're doing the I told you so, you're probably not in a good place. In Jonah's mind, honestly, it was about Jonah, but just as significantly, it was about Jonah's people. Listen, Jonah here was clearly... Don't miss this, and you're going to need me to explain. Jonah was full of unbridled nationalism and racism. That's a big part of what fuels his anger. And if you think about it, racism is always a pretty self-focused mindset. Let me explain. Now, some have said that Jonah was probably upset here because his reputation as a prophet would take a hit. He's gone into Nineveh, said you're going to be overturned, and it doesn't happen. And that may have been part of it, certainly. Jonah was upset, some have said, because he knows what the Assyrians will do in the future and he wants God to cut off that story. He wants the Ninevites to be obliterated so they can't obliterate Israel, which they eventually did. And it could be part of it, but almost all scholars agree that Jonah was upset at least in part, and I would say in significant part, because he had a completely wrong-headed view of God and the extent of God's mercy. I want you to hear this. God said to the Israelites, I have chosen you. You are special to me. I want you to take that message to all people and tell them I'm a God who loves, a God who chooses people to follow him. The Israelites heard, we are so special. Of all the people in the world, we're the most special. God said, you belong to me. I am your God. You are my people. I want you to tell the world about me so that all people might be my people. The Israelites heard, he belongs to us. We have the most powerful God in the world, the God of all gods. God said to the Israelites, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. The Israelites heard, we get blessed. If we do good, God owes it to us to give us blessing. This is nationalism. This is racism. This is my people-ism. For some of you who are struggling with this notion that the Jews might have been racists, you need to know that part of Isaiah's ministry was spent speaking against exactly this sentiment. And Isaiah was very nearly a contemporary to Jonah. I want you to listen to what Isaiah said in chapter 42. He says this, I, the Lord, have called you, he's talking to the people, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. You're to be a blessing for all people. Blessings are to flow through you to the world. I want you to listen to how Isaiah describes God's word to him about his own ministry. This is Isaiah's ministry. 
Isaiah 49, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob only and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the world. Part of Isaiah's ministry was counteracting the kind of attitude that Jonah was displaying because this kind of attitude did not honor God. And it prevented Jonah from being obedient. It's often this kind of attitude. It's often consistent with religion. But repentance knows better. Racism has no place among those who follow Jesus. It's not about me or my people in any way. In fact, in our lives, we draw the circle so tight, sometimes my people is just my family. It's about God, the God of the whole world. The result is that religion always closes ranks around itself and defends itself. Repentance listens, examines itself, and opens itself up to others. So let's pause for a minute. And I want to think about the issue of racism here. I'd like to be as critical of all of our politics as I possibly can be because I think we deserve it. So those of you who are liberal, you are often so proud of yourself for getting it when it comes to race and racism. And you're so critical of those who, in your view, refuse to get it. You need to remember repentance is never proud of getting it. Repentance recognizes that it probably doesn't get it. And even if it does, it gets it solely because it's been revealed. And repentance is never self-righteous in its criticism of others. Remember the old log speck? For those of you who are conservative, you are so tired of hearing about racism in this country. You're especially tired of everything being blamed on racism. You wish people would get over it and take responsibility for their own lives. But repentance never begrudges an opportunity to examine itself and its motives. Repentance doesn't mind being examined, it welcomes it. And repentance always sides with the least powerful in a conversation. Repentance doesn't feel the need to explain itself, even when accused, even when falsely accused. Even though Jonah was a prophet, he had a radically ethnocentric, my people-centered view of the world, and it was not God-honoring. He was a nationalist and a racist. And some of you are still, no doubt, having trouble with me calling this racism. You see the problem with Jonah's attitude, but you think it's a dramatic stretch to call it racism. Perhaps you're right, but allow me to push on that for a moment. If not racism, what is the problem? Why is he so resistant to this Assyrian revival, and why is he mad at God? Maybe it's just that the Assyrians were so debased and violent and debauched as a culture, Jonah just couldn't abide them being the recipients of God's mercy. But I believe it's more sinister than that. I would ask you to think of the larger historical context. Think, think Isaiah and his message and how God needed to remind the people. But also, remember, this attitude was still prevalent in the time of Jesus. The attitude of the Pharisees toward the Samaritans, remember? If you know the story of Jesus, you know this. The Samaritans were not bloodthirsty baby killers. And yet good Pharisees believed it was ungodly to even associate with the Samaritans. But Jesus didn't see it that way. And neither did his followers. So when God showed mercy to the Assyrians, Jonah's attitude was, How dare you? How could you? Jonah ended up feeling miserable and drowning in self-pity because, don't miss this, Bad theology often leads to despair and self-pity. So let me talk about our church for a minute. 
I'm going to surprise you here. I don't think racism is a big deal here at Gateway. I'm willing to be shown otherwise, and obviously, look at me, I'm no expert on racism. I've spent my life on the side of the oppressors in that conversation. But I don't think racism is a major issue here. But here's what I think is a big deal for us, is an issue going forward. This church was started by an old white guy. And thank the Lord, it is no longer filled with just old white guy types. Especially in the last couple of years, many of you non-old white people have thought, hey, that old white guy was okay, let's go again. So here's my charge to you. Help us live more fully beyond racism. Help us be a place where the opposite of this form of meism exists. Help us be a place where all are welcome. That's God's desire here. And we need you to help us do it. We need you not to just come. We need you to step in and lead us. And in the body of Christ, the way to lead is to serve. So we need you. Now, some of you have already begun that process. Thank you. And for the rest of you, giddy up. While I hope and pray that racism is not a big deal here, I'm certain that meism is. Meism is the primary disease killing suburban America. You can quote me on that. Our primary enemy is not heart disease or cancer. The primary thing snuffing the life out of suburban Americans is meism. We have constructed lives that are all about me and my people. And as I said, our lives are so tightly woven, sometimes my people is just my family. And we need to be reminded that God is pushing us always beyond ourselves. This summer, we went, as a church, we, we sent two groups to the Dominican Republic to do a short-term mission trip with a woman down there who will be here in a few weeks in, in September, Ina York. Thank you, Kevin and Emily. And we took two groups down, and when they come back, and this happens almost every year, how was it? Awesome. It was so eye-opening. You know, it's not unusual for people to tell me, this is the best week of my life. It was great. How was it for the, the kids? It was, like, unbelievable. Everything that I would want to happen as an antidote to Northern Virginia happened while we were there. Why? Because that's what we were created for, to be beyond ourselves. We were created to be outside of ourselves, to let blessing flow through us, and we have been so blessed. And when we keep that blessing for ourselves, we cap it. Jonah didn't see it. He went out to the edge of the city to sulk. He constructed a booth to protect himself from the Assyrian heat while he waited for the city to be destroyed, and it was going to be a long, disappointing wait. God had other plans. And while Jonah sulked and teetered on the edge of heat stroke, God provided a vine which grew up and produced additional much-needed shade. Don't miss this. That word provided there, provided the vine. By the way, it's the same word used in chapter 1 when God provided the great fish. Here's the deal. God provided a vine to teach Jonah a lesson. He provided the great sea creature to swallow Jonah. The sovereign God was always intervening, directing, correcting, disciplining, blessing, moving, speaking, stirring in Jonah's life, throughout his life, and he is so in ours. And for our part, when we live in agreement with our design, 
We end up on the right side of blessing. We end up recipients of grace. We end up leading open, full lives. But when we get all bothered about our rights and what we want to happen for ourselves and it becomes about me and my kids and why God, even when we add religion to that, we end up angry and feeling sorry for ourselves. Let's pray. God, I don't know how you have spoken or how you want to speak, but I believe you're here. And I ask that you would expand our hearts. I also ask that you would break them with the things that break your heart. Lord, we lean into you this morning. We ask you to search us, test us, know us. Here's our anxiety. Here's our fear. Here's our sin. Cleanse us, heal us, forgive us. Move us beyond our tight little world holding on to our blessings. Move us beyond ourselves. And move us beyond our goodness. There's not a lot of it. Such as we are, Lord, we come to you. So today, honestly, Lord, For those of us that need to be cleansed, I ask that you would cleanse. For those of us that need to be healed, I ask that you would heal us. And all of us, Lord, speak into our lives and move us. We've got work to do. It cannot be about us. Call us into that, Lord. Call us into our place in that work. You can stay seated. I'm going to sing this final chorus of So Will I. Will you pray with me? Father God, you are so good that even when we run, your grace still abounds. Even when we move away from you, Lord, and do the things that we know that we're not supposed to do, 
your grace abounds. God, you are sovereign over all and you are good. So God, I just pray that that would be the cry of our hearts, that we would want to follow after you. We would want to do the things that you've called us to do, the things that you're pulling at our heart to do. It's in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. You may go in peace.